no secret that the war in Israel has emotions running high here in the U.S. It seems like every day we're hearing about another batch of attacks motivated by hate. In fact, the Anti-Defamation League says reports of anti-Semitic incidents are up nearly 400% since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, killing at least 1,400 people. Jews, Palestinians, and Muslims in this country are scared. College campuses have become pressure cookers. I was on my way to the kosher dining hall when I looked down and saw the threats. How did you feel? I mean, it's, it's terrifying. Like, this isn't, this isn't anything that we thought we would ever have to deal with in the United States. And a lot of the anger, especially from Palestinians and younger Americans, is directed at the White House. In fact, at a fundraiser in Minnesota on Wednesday night, a heckler interrupted President Joe Biden, urging him to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Biden said he was supportive of a humanitarian pause to allow more hostages to be released. But that was in a private setting, in a room filled with mostly friendly faces. As Israel continues to retaliate against Hamas, and more and more civilians are killed in Gaza as a result, some are asking why the president isn't putting more public pressure on Israel to pause the fighting. My guest this week is Phil Mattingly. He's the co-anchor of CNN This Morning and a former White House correspondent. We're going to talk about how Biden is balancing emotional pleas, domestic politics, and needs from the U.S.'s strongest partner in the Middle East. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Ryan. Phil, there's not a lot that both political parties in this country can agree on, but before this war broke out, it seemed like support for Israel was something that Republicans and Democrats could come to some agreement on. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Look, there's obviously uh, issues on the periphery. Democratic Party in particular, I think, has uh, become a little less cohesive on that position over the course of the last couple of years. But I think overall, it has been pretty steadfast. So what does that picture look like now, a few weeks later? Uh, it's it's tough. And I, and I think... You know, and you know this as well as anybody, there's a ton of nuance here, and this has gotten very, very complicated. I think the reality is, and this was actually a, a large part of why President Biden, who's been very close with Israel, worked to hug them so close so quickly in the wake of the October 7th attacks. We're going to continue to affirm that Israel has the right to respond responsibility to defend its citizens from terror, and it needs to do so in a manner that was consistent with international and humanitarian law. The they knew that this was coming, this moment where there would be uh, hundreds of airstrikes per day that were killing civilians in Gaza, and there would be horrific pictures out of attacks on refugee camps, uh, children and mothers and babies. Look, the loss of every, every innocent life is a tragedy. We grieve for those deaths and continue to grieve for the Israeli children and mothers who are brutally slaughtered by Hamas terrorists, and also continue to hold in our hearts the hundreds of families and loved ones, including small children and elderly grandparents, including American citizens being held hostage. My administration continues to work around the clock to reunite those families. We're not going to give up, period. We're not going to give up. He understood he was going to have to 
kind of take a moral clarity stand in the wake of October 7th, but also be there to kind of deflect to some degree because those fissures we were talking about that have developed in the Democratic Party over the course of the last decade have certainly come to the forefront. I truly believe this in my heart. Americans want to cease fire. They want it to stop. President Biden, not all America's with you on this one. And you need to wake up and understand that. Think about the Rashida Tlaibs in Michigan, the Ilhan Omars, Summerlee in Pennsylvania. Congresswoman Cori Bush is facing criticism after accusing Israel of engaging in an ethnic cleansing campaign. This has always been an issue for them. It's starting to spread a little bit. And I think the bigger concern, if you are the Biden administration on the policy side of things, is more Democrats who are aligned with the president on foreign policy are saying this is getting to be a, a little much. And to that point, we saw 13 Democratic senators sign a letter calling for a short-term cessation of hostilities. And then on Friday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was back in Israel. He said he pushed Israeli leaders to better protect civilians in Gaza and the West Bank and brought up this idea of humanitarian pauses. Now, a source directly familiar with the comment told CNN that Israel's defense minister told Blinken that Israel will not agree to a pause in fighting unless it includes the release of hostages. But with all that said, Phil, for Biden himself, what is he weighing as he you know, directs all this diplomacy? I think this is the best question that I don't think has been explored enough about how many different factors are converging in the Oval Office, in the Situation Room, for him and for his top officials every single day. He is weighing wanting to be in the room with Netanyahu, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, and his war cabinet, his unity cabinet, wanting to ensure that U.S. voices are constantly consulted, are constantly in an advisory role, and therefore doesn't want to break because he knows if, and this is officials have told me this repeatedly, they wanted to, this is a quote, we want to hug them close so they feel like they have to always have us with them mm. because to some degree they feel like they can guide. And that's not decide, that's not give orders by any means, but it is to say in call after call after call in public statement and private statement from Biden and his top officials, you hear him talking about the importance of humanitarian aid, the importance of keeping the rules and laws of war uh, in mind when they do things because they feel like they're outside the room they'll have no control over that, and that won't be considered at all. And the reality is we are a missile strike away, a mishap away, an accidental uh, significant loss of life away from a regional war. And trying to maintain contact with all of these different parties on a diplomatic side, uh, on a friendship side, on an adversarial side, while also uh, trying to deal with domestic political issues, it's hard. But I think they care very much about humanitarian aid. They care very much about uh, innocent lives of civilians in Gaza. But I think the view of Biden, uh, according to officials that I've spoken to, which is, is fairly unified within his administration, is the U.S. wouldn't want anyone telling the U.S. how they could or couldn't respond to 9-11. I think Biden's actually said this. Right. Um, we are not in the position where we can dictate. Now, I think there's a viable school of thought, which is like, well, wait, we're financing... The U.S. is financing a good portion mm. of how their military operates, their Iron Dome system, the billions that they're trying to send over right now. You have more leverage than you're utilizing. But I think the the reality is when you talk to administration officials is they're a sovereign state. They were attacked. Their people were attacked. We can't tell them what they can and can't do.
So that's kind of the diplomatic global view of things. But domestically, politically, is that a concern in the Biden camp that come 2024, some of this outrage about allowing these airstrikes to continue in the way that they have could come back and bite him at the polls? It is more on the uh, outside advisory, outside Democrat, and I think the, the natural response to that, which I've probably heard from White House officials, is Democrats are always panicking about everything, like calm down. But you know, you would be blind not to look at a state like Michigan, where there's a significant uh, Muslim population. They are very, uh, in large part, supportive of Democrats, that if all of a sudden 10, 20, 30,000 votes move away from them in some of these states, uh, they would have real problems if you look at what happened in 2020 and kind of the key battleground states. Now, what I've heard from White House officials is, you know, we're not thinking about the politics here. Yes, they are. They are constantly, mm-hmm. uh, some of their top advisors are having daily phone calls with both kind of Jewish advocacy groups, uh, Israel advocacy groups, but also Muslim advocacy groups as well. And they are cognizant of the fact that if they start to lose significant support, if people decide to stay home, they don't think anybody's going to vote for Trump. Uh, right. in that community. He's trying to re-implement a Muslim ban on his first day. But they know that apathy or general rejection is problematic. I think the one thing they would counter with is what would be worse for us in 2024, a regional war that the U.S. actually ends up getting involved in? Has to send or, troops. Right. Or this being dealt with over the course of the next five or six months. That's an easy thing to say right now because it seems a little theoretical. Mm. I guess the answer to this could be just that being president is just a really hard job, but you also see at home a rise in anti-Semitic incidents, Islamophobic rhetoric. How does Biden like walk that line as well, in addition to all the global stuff that we mentioned? You know, I was talking with somebody about this in the administration the other day. Being president is hard. No decision that is reaching the president's desk is a decision that's easy or else it would have been made by somebody else before it got to the president's mm-hmm. desk. And yet the kind of confluence of issues that come to the forefront when it comes to the Middle East, Israel, Palestinians, there's nothing more complicated. There's nothing harder than this. And when you factor in the domestic side of things, particularly as you've seen the rise in anti-Semitism over the course of the five or six years, uh, I think everyone remembers in the wake of 9-11, the Islamophobia uh, that was pervasive in the country. And everyone knows that everyone's unhappy right now Mm. on top of all of that, that this is a very, very difficult issue. And I think what I've heard frustration from administration officials about is they go out and they talk about how anti-Semitism is terrible and they're setting up task forces, DHS, and and then they get attacked for being Islamophobic Mm. or not properly mentioning or weighing uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. And if you talk about, you know, if you even mention Islamophobia and why that's a problem, why they're trying to combat that, then... People are saying, well, you're not paying enough attention to uh, the rise in anti-Semitism hate or crimes or threats. And so it's a really complicated balance. The one thing uh, I would say they've been more unequivocal about these issues, particularly on college campuses. It took them a couple of days, but they started to get more on their front foot than they have been. But I'm still hearing a lot of people outside saying, where's the Department of Education on this? Like, why aren't you cracking down? Why aren't you doing things? I'm not totally sure that's something that's in there toolbox, if you will. But I think it's just a constant, everywhere they turn, someone's telling them they're not doing enough or they're sliding one side or the other. And there's no way to walk kind of a a middle ground here. Kind of a microcosm of just this conflict in general as it's gone on for decades and decades. Phil, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
After Phil and I spoke on Wednesday, the White House announced it would develop a national strategy to combat Islamophobia. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Anna Sterla and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Sunday with a new episode. Talk to you then. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.